Congratulations. Hopefully, I will watch the comments to see if we're actually working. <laughs> okay. Cool. Um, yeah. Okay, I feel strange standing so far away, but okay. Um, yeah, so uh, my name is uh, Natasha or Natalia. Uh, if you Google, it will be both. Uh, Natasha is my Russian name and I actually prefer it. So I'm a UX researcher, um, the youngest, um, the, the yeah, the youngest actually UX researcher at Flixbus, uh, which um, I will also um, come up uh, come to like in five slides. Um, and because of my background, I was I, I convinced the team that we should start UX writing, and we kind of trying to kickstart it. And there are some lessons, not even lessons, I would say, but some questions we have for ourselves that uh, we've been trying to answer and I just want to share how we are trying to answer them. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know, I, I'm, you might have seen this, it's been going on in UX writing communities the whole week today. So this is what happens when you don't have UX writing. Yeah, and this is the point when you actually need to hire a UX writer um, so that we don't want to have a coronavirus. Um, yeah, so... Nice. Um, I, it made my week like last week, I think. I, I decided to share it with you. So um, my background, because every time we speak about UX writing, there are always people asking, like, how did you come to UX writing? And for everyone, um, the road is so different that I feel like sharing how, how is my road so far also brings a lot of value. Um, so I just finished my... Um, PhD in literary studies and when I say it people think that it for the last four years it looks like this for me well it kind of for a week but mostly it looks like this and it's actually a Cambridge University library um, so this is how it looks it looks like crap um, so dust and books for the last four years and uh, when I finished my PhD I decided that I want to drop out and uh, I've been starting to see what are um, the UX options are there. And I got to uh, be hired as a member of the really cool UX research team we have at Flixbus, which is actually Flix Mobility, but you know us as Flixbus. Um, so we have Luki, um, who started all the UX processes in uh, Flixbus three years ago. So um, she's she's a UX designer, um, and I think she's still officially a UX designer. And then she was joined by Carolina, who is actually she comes from marketing. Um, and then last year uh, the team was um, uh, Pietro joined the team, who has a degree in human computer interaction, and then joined. I, um, with my linguistics and literary studies degree. So we are very broad and we cover a lot of, uh, it actually helps to cover a lot of topics we have at Flixbus. And um, just a bit of how we, um, how did we get at this point at, um, in UX maturity where we decided to kickstart UX writing. So we measure our success uh, our growth um, through this UX maturity stages um, framework. So 
I will just quickly go through um, this for one, two, five, so it helps to understand. Um, so yeah, um, UX maturity stage is a framework um, that organizations can use to track the movement of UX. Um, it helps to understand their status quo and recognize the challenges and generally helps us progress to another level. So if you start from the left, you have principle based. It is the first stage is basically like the absence of UX. On this stage is usually there are no UX people in the company and all only developers are be building the product. Um, and of course, um, the organization doesn't have a UX expert to um, show the way. Then at the second stage, you start with you start usability testing, you get to know what is UX, you uh, make other team members aware of UX. But it's still like, you know, make it nice. This is what UX at this stage. And um, from making it nice to actually establishing a UX process, you need to go to a third stage which is called adopting and I think this is one of the key stages of UX uh, maturity. This is where all the hard stuff is happening in my opinion. Um, and of course uh, the last two stages uh, when UX informs product strategy but also global strategy are of course the most exciting ones because you get to be involved in the projects from the very start uh, when, only, when people only have an idea of a, of a project or a product. Um, and in the end, of course, you wanna be um, you know, involved at the global level. So uh, we've did, we did our evaluation a couple of months ago and um, before I show where we are, um, I think there are a lot of like, okay, who have ever used Flixbus? Okay, cool. So you can actually maybe uh, help me evaluate, like, what would you think, which UX maturity stage Flixbus is at? Okay. <laughs> um, so we've done our own evaluation and I think we are at the end of the age, uh, the end of stage three. Uh, we've been working very hard this year to actually establish really cool, really um, quality, quality-wise good processes. And um, we then set, sat down and we thought, what do we need to go? What do we need for us to go to the stage four? And this is where we decided to introduce UX writing. Um, it is still very fresh. We're still like learning in, from our mistakes, which are a lot, but um, yeah, when I, uh, when I talk about UX writing, this is the question I get, like who the heck is the UX writer? Get it all the time uh, from every team I go to and I ask for UX writing. Uh, um, well, that is hard to concentrate, okay. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> Instead of, um, ex um, instead of explaining it in words, which is my job, I will just show you two examples that are a little, really rough. One is when there is no UX writing. So um, I'm not a developer, so I ideally don't have any idea what 404 means. Um, I'm not given any instruction on how to go back, how to correct my mistake and what is happening here and where am I, I have no idea. 
And example of great UX writing. Not only, not only you know what to do now to go back to your home page, but you also have fun. You know that you're on a Disney site, you're a brand where um, you're not at least upset that you ended up on this page. It's really cool. Like uh, you, you've seen Mike Wazowski, now you can go back home and search, search again for what you were searching. Um, and if I'm to summarize these two examples and to, give some, to get something out of that, I would say that the UX writer is this guy, um, silently or not silently in his case, I guess. Um, they're like invisible guides. They are, um, they at least, like, marketing and PR would grab your attention, right? But UX writers are the invisible guides. They help you use the product. Um, they help you through this journey of using a product. And in my opinion, um, oops, should I go back? Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so in my opinion, good contents, content shows, first of all, care, care and understanding about user needs at every step of their journey through your product or app. So I would say that the UX writer, he or she, uses simple words to explain things. There is no need to be, there is no need to speak uh, the language that is different to the language of your users. Um, it also shares conversations. For me, is using the vocabulary of your users. So I will, will go. I will go back to to this topic a bit like soon. And um, it also builds brand brand awareness in in a non marketing PR way, where it just in your face. <laughs> but um, it builds awareness and helps create uh, create creating a loyal fans. And um, this is what we kind of want a UX writer to be, and this is what I want me, uh, me myself to be. Um, so when we were thinking about UX writing, we had, we soon faced um, five challenges, and I'm just gonna go through them and um, tell you guys how we did it. It doesn't mean it's the best way, but this is how we are doing it right now, and we are always looking um, to uh, improve ourselves. So the first question we had was like, how do our users feel and how do they talk about our product? And for that, uh, because we're a team of UX researchers, we have a lot of UX researchers solution, UX research solutions to that. And one of the ones that we used was um, empathy maps. Map. So um, it's a great addition to UX research that you do I hope on your users like user journeys and um, of course on the goals of your users so um, this is one of the empathy maps that was done by one of our UX designers um, a long time ago some there is more stuff I just needed to I, I couldn't uh, show everything but it was done during user lab so Sophie thinks where's the station Sophie thinks happy and relieved because she likes that there is a baby wagon on the train. So um, it really helped um, to know what to write on which point uh, and what to check because it's already been written, of course. Um, so if you use empathy map, I hope it won't lead to a, 
to this case. It was taken also from one of UX writing groups in, on Facebook. Um, this is one dating app. And this is what you see when you just downloaded the app, just start using it so no people like you. But that's not a surprise to us. Okay, so I'm ugly or something. So people can draw such wrong conclusions about the whole user flow just because you didn't, well, hopefully they did, hopefully it was just a mistake. Um, you are not empathetic with your user at this moment. Hopefully they do, but um, yeah, it can be the case. So, okay, um, so now we know how users feel and talk about our product, but do we speak our brand's language? And I think this is uh, one of the most important points because uh, we, we work a lot as a UX research team with brand and marketing, and we uh, worked with them on, um, we worked with them and their materials and created a waste chart. So if you ever think of the Flixbus brand, and if you ever Google it, this is what we definitely find about us. It's our vision that we are smart, um, smart and green mobility for everyone to experience the world. And when we take this vision uh, and divide it in three principles, so the text here is not about Flixbus, I couldn't use, of course, the Flixbus, but it's just the, you know, waste chart is very uh, dull thing to feel, but it's very helpful because it's just the table with the brand principles on top and then writing rules for every of these principles. So when I need to write something, I would write three copies um, for each of the principles. And then I will just share it with the stakeholders. And it is also a, a good way to start a conversation. So guys, I have you know three, um, three versions. Let's just pick one and go from then. And of course, it's a lot of ideation after that, but it's still a good way to start talking about the content. So we speak our brand la brand's language, hopefully, uh, but um, do we speak the same language as our users? And this is for me the most important one because I'm not a native speaker of my primary, primary language at Flixbus. Um, I hope I will get to write in my own language and it might happen soon, but for me, um, conversation mining is the most important thing. If I need to write uh, for the most broad, broad audience that we have at Flixbus, we need to be sure that we are, people understand us. So what we do, we eavesdrop on customers, we talk to customer service, and we do the thing called conversation mining, which is basically scrolling through um, Twitter, reviews and uh, we also have read it um, so this is was when I was helping my colleagues at lost and found we were just scrolling through every social media we found um, it, it was funny at times sometimes very sad but it really helps to understand uh, if we really speak about our product in the terms that are understandable to our users um, and then okay 
I wrote everything I could, I checked, I did my UX research and my UX writing copy, but doesn't even make sense. And uh, this is something that I've been using since my um, school days. Uh, we just do common comprehension and readability scores. Um, we are very lucky to have an um, online user testing platform where you can do a lot of different stuff. And I just recently ran my first remote closed test. Closed test is basically language test. So, um, the, by making a closed test, you test your copy for comprehension. So, you get a comprehension score. And um, it measures if the users, user uh, of your targeted audience can understand the intended meaning of the text. So, it's pretty easy. It's like um, you omit every fifth word, let's say, but microcopy, uh, the people who wrote about close testing, they all suggest um, a bit less than every sixth word. I used every third word or every fourth word, but sometimes came also to f uh, every fifth word. And you just ask people to fill in the blanks as far as, as, far as they understand. And it brought very interesting results. Uh, like uh, one of the copy was written, was didn't score at all and uh, we understood that actually the target audience speaks about this product completely differently and then we of course change it a bit but when I don't have much time to run a close test and I suggested to all the UX designers we have just go to the Hemingway app or any other online readability service out there because it um, of course um, there are more UX UX designers and of course much more text that than we can handle and sometimes UX designers need it very fast and then we just say guys just they all have spell checking uh, plugins at Figma where we work um, but I also always ask just do it through Hemingway app if you really don't have time to come to us just check it for basic readability and it it was really cool, like um, we noticed uh, with localization team that um, the copy got a bit better, so it's very nice. Um, so yeah, um, and the thing that we also try to do uh, uh, offline, and this is something that we haven't done in a while, I, I admit, um, but um, this is what uh, we used to do a lot, before we had an online tool is UX Croissant. Um, and UX Croissant is some, it's speed, speed dating style user lab. So you have a small parallel sessions where you have only five minutes to present your topic and get feedback. And if we are unable to, um, to get the, our users uh, to, uh, to come, we test it with our new employees. And it's not only researchers, uh, POs or designers, they can also propose their topic and get uh, evaluated by our new users. Um, and of course, uh, when we check the copy throughout the time, so not just once, we try to uh, check it uh, every two or three months, uh, we um, keep asking the same questions. So it's uh, very important for consistency. We have, um, if you ever heard, heard about Google Panda questionnaire, it's uh, 10 basic uh, questions to evaluate this, um, the content with your users. And the most important part is keep asking them 
continuously. So then you have a, a better feedback on how your copy is improving. Um, so yeah, this is uh, yeah, this is our tips um, as a UX research team, primarily, and as a uh, you know a UX writer enthusiast, I would say, um, is um, try to do uh, empathy maps. It shouldn't be just you. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I have two more slides to go and then you're open to questions. Um, yeah, so empathy maps are really nice uh, um, to a uh, really nice um, thing to create together with your team or with your designers, with your POs or developers, um, together with anything else you do, personas or user journeys. Then uh, we also tried, to creating, tried creating voice charts. It, it kind of worked, so I really like to always get back to this voice chart whenever I have a writer, writer's blog or anything. And um, customer service are, of course, your big friends. If you have it, if you have it in your company, if you don't, um, eavesdrop on your customers online. It's also a very cool way to understand how they speak about your product. And language tests are there, easy to run. Sometimes you just put in the text in Hemingway app and you have your answer. And yeah, if you have time and capabilities, just do a small, very quick user lab, the one that we call um, UX Croissant at Flixbus. And of course, you can always, always, always ask for advice online. There are a lot of groups out there uh, at Facebook, Slack, or LinkedIn. Um, they're very fast in answering. Like uh, I can ask them something, and it's 5 a.m. In, in, in the States, and someone will answer me. Um, and those are three books that I personally read, and I think they're cool and very helpful. One of them is here. Um, um, the voice chart was taken from the strategic writing for UX um, and I found it very convincing and of course Erica Hall is um, you know if, if you haven't read her other books just just enough research I think uh, you should and this is a very good um, addition to that uh, so she talks about the future of conversational design which is not only UX writing but very helpful yeah, and uh, I recently read a very interesting book by Stephen King on writing, and I think it also applies to UX writers as well, is that you never write alone. Uh, uh, if you can uh, talk to your stakeholders, designers, uh, developers, anyone, the, as much feedback as possible is what makes the copy in the end. Um, yours, I think, like, if, you, if we talk about brand. Um, yeah, so... I, we're right with the doors open. Thank you. So we had a few last-minute uh, shifts and changes. So I think what we're going to do, if it suits everybody, is we'll take questions from Natasha now quickly, then we'll have some food, and then we'll come back to Roger's talk. Um, so I'm not expected to pick anyone up here. <laughs> if you could repeat the question and yes, any questions? Uh, so I will repeat the question here. Yes. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Hi. Um, so you mentioned about five tips. Yeah. Or I believe that's for the product, like a 
I think definitely, especially um, the voice chart. Uh, it's I think super important. Uh, so I, sorry, I didn't repeat the question. So five tips, five tips for um, for like online communication. Yeah. So I think the voice chart is very important because um, it's very different. It's very different. A tweet will be very different if. Um, you are promoting something new in your product update or anything or a new product and answering uh, a person who, who had very bad experience with your product the tweet will be the tweets will be completely different and if you answer especially if you answer to a bad tweet in you know hey you had a problem wow you need to you need to understand that this person is now in your empathy map, in your user journey, you understand that this is this is the person who is now at the lowest in communication with your product. You have to be very careful what you say. You cannot take your one of your brand principles that is uh, you know funny if if it's one of your brand principles, and you cannot answer funny. You need to answer very you know very um, accurately and be aware that the person is now ready to write you know hundred reviews about your product so i think voice charts and um, empathy maps are really important at this point how do you like for example twitter there's like a trend to it and like there's always something trendy mm. so you have to act according to that trendy subject it's yeah like keyword or whatever hashtag whatever it is so how do you keep that five tips like in an automatic way in the right way with that trendy keyword and uh, being more you know, yeah. active in social media. Trendy keywords that apply to your product? Yeah, generally, like, you know, whenever um, there's like a trendy things are happening, for example, yeah. like the virus now or the Australian fire in the uh. war, so, you know, brands are generally trying to catch that trend because yeah. everyone's talking about it. So, it's, yeah, it's um, like that connection is the, the, the most important. Well, I th first of all, I think in this, when you want to react to Australian fire, it's better to confirm with your brand that you're react reacting in the right way. And this is one of the uh, tips is to, um, UX writing is not uh, marketing writing or PR writing or copywriting. And it's all about uh, helping the users. So if your tweet is about helping the users that are stuck in the Australian fire, then just remember that you need to be also to remember the user journey. If if you're gonna promote your product uh, somehow to help, I, I know if it's about promoting your product, then definitely talk to brand before writing it because it's I think already more in their department and as the in UX department, the UX writing department. But if it's to help your users, take a look at your voice chart. If it if it has something, I think. It, um, I, I don't know how to do that here, but let's just, no, no, okay. Um, yeah, if one of your principles is not efficient, but reliable, then of course you have a special dictionary up to capitalization, punctuation, grammar, how to be reliable in writing a tweet. 
but I, I don't think um, the this. I think that the voice chat is pretty universal. Um, that is its power. I think. Yeah. Okay. The other questions in the room actually have. I might take one from the chat room. <laughs> I'm going to speak into this microphone. So I have a question from um, Juan Lara. Does the length of the content change how you test or develop the content? Okay. Um, yes, uh, the length changes and sometimes very drastically. Um, we have a very big localization team. And we know that uh, we, uh, the English copy is the shortest copy. Every other copy will be longer. So what we introduced just recently, very, very recently, is that um, localization take a look at the designer's um, you know, Figma link or something before it is sent to developers and to localization. And the localization experts, they have like a pager duty um, they can already tell you guys this what you've written in English will be unlocalizable <laughs> in um, other language. So um, the length of content is something that localization needs to be aware of if you have a localization team. If not, just remember that I think it, uh, English text is like one third of a, every other text you will get. So. Um, I think there is a rule somewhere out there. Um, my localization colleagues will be, of course, the better person to answer that. But um, yeah, there are uh, rules for localizing the content, if, if it's what is meant by the question. <laughs> OK. <laughs> yeah. Let's take How did uh, weather. weather? So I guess the question is, <laughs> does UX writing help influence everyone else's communication? Yeah. Well, actually, I would say 30% of what I write, I write for business. Uh, we have an amazing tech team. Uh, our UX designers uh, know, I won't say, much less than me in UX writing. And our developers are amazing guys and girls. Um, so I actually do, I would say, like 30, 70, 30% business. And uh, because everyone is very user-centric at our company, the business already caught up with UX research at this point and UX design. So when we said, guys, you know, we want to kickstart UX writing, everyone was like, I have a job for you. And there were like 100 tickets. So um, that wasn't a problem. <laughs> but. Oh, I might take one more from the chat room and then we'll verify these. Mm -hmm. Okay. I actually have quite a few questions, but I'm just going to pick one. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Let's see what I pick. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe. Oh, that is two. Yeah, sorry. I was maybe thinking. Karine? Yeah, I was maybe thinking the Karine's question. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, the question from Karine, who I know is in Paris. 
Uh, do you let developers write some copy after providing guidelines, or does it all go through the UX team? Um, right now. <laughs> Right now it's a bit complicated because we're very new to that, uh, but um, our plan is to provide guidelines and workshops to uh, educate uh, developers to do it um, mainly by themselves, but of course there should be some quality check if you, because it's not a developer's job, we shouldn't ask from him to be a perfect UX writer, but for now it's like, it's for now we try to check um, because developers are also working in a different temp tempo as UX writers, but we try to meet uh, every time there is a handoff um, for localization or between UX designer and developer, um, I try to be involved as much as possible, but it's not always it's not always feasible, but developers are great guys, so they know that they need to check with someone from UX at least. Yeah. Cool. Um, if everybody could thank Natasha for giving. Thank you. See if we can get that straight first. Oh, okay. Yeah, straight to the. Was it straight before? Roughly. I didn't touch anything on that one. So we now move the table over here. Wonderful. Okay. Welcome, everyone. I'm glad you're still here. Um, my name is Roger Sheen, and I'm here to talk also about UX writing tonight. Um, before I do that, I'd like to thank Humanitech for hosting us, um, for Chris for tirelessly organizing this Write to Docs meetup um, over all these years, uh, and Ifa, who isn't with us tonight, but um, was really instrumental in organizing tonight's event. So um, I think uh, without these people, this wouldn't happen. Um, so thanks for your interest. Um, thanks for sticking around after the pizza and not leaving after you filled your bellies. Um, if there's anyone still left in the live stream, thank you for sticking around, even though you didn't get any pizza. Um, so here's my take on this. To me, UX writing is a new word, but it's not a new task. It's something we've been doing for a long time. And UX writing combines aspects of several other related roles that exist in our industry, right? A content strategist might be focused on uh, a little bit more overall uh, corporate strategy when it comes to communication and things, uh, but a lot of people that do this sort of work are called content strategists. In fact, the people at Facebook that write UI copy have content strategist in their title. Um, information architects also do related work. Uh, and a UX writer needs to have a basic understanding of information architecture principles uh, with things like information hierarchy and how people understand structure. Um, so that's a good skill for a UX writer to have. 
technical writers who are usually concerned with providing procedural information and explaining to people how things work uh, are also the types of people that end up as UX writers one day, perhaps. Um, UX designers also have related skills. So the notion of how users interact with software is something that makes this work easier. And if you have that kind of understanding, um, that will make you a better UX writer. And copywriters also have a related skill. And in fact, many people use these words interchangeably. Many UX writers were called copywriters before we started calling them UX writers. Um, but to my mind, a copywriter is typically more focused on persuasive content. So a copywriter might be someone that writes copy for brochures, websites, uh, marketing materials, where the goal is to convince the user to buy a product or persuade, as opposed to assist the user uh, during the use of the product. So in large organizations, there may be dedicated people in every one of these roles, but not always. It may be just be you. So on that assumption, I will look tonight at how you might go about sort of organizing some of this information, right? Um, so what is it that a UX writer does? I can't profess to explain that in a definitive fashion uh, because I have done this myself in a limited context for certain companies, and I can talk tonight about the way we did things at one particular company, um, but uh, that's just the part of the elephant that I have touched. You've gotten a little bit from Natasha this evening about uh, her perspective at Flixbus, and tonight we'll talk about another use case, and that's Wire. So I'll talk about the UI copy process at Wire. What is Wire? Wire is a secure messenger, much like Skype, in fact, uh, founded by the initial uh, inventors behind Skype. Many of the original Skype team were behind uh, Wire as well. So we'll take a look at one UX writing journey based on how we did things at Wire and talk a little bit about um, how that process evolved over time and some of the guidelines and resources that we use to um, structure our work there. Talk a little bit about how we handled terminology and uh, localization, and then some of the other challenges and issues that we faced. So before we go too deeply into that, let's take a look at what string files typically look like, right? How does copy get into a user interface? So here are three examples from three different platforms, right? At the top, we see Android's version of a string. Android typically handles user interface copy in an XML-based format. Uh, so there's an XML, XML element called string that has a name attribute that contains an ID that is used to identify the particular piece of text that the software would like to display at a particular location in the interface. So in this, place, in this case, we have an ID with a super concise ID of people picker invite share text body. We don't need to care what that is. But the piece of text that's shown in the user interface says, I'm on wire. Search for something or visit get.wire.com. So this is the piece of, string that, a piece of text that we might use in the app to uh, let people know that we're using the application and we'd like to connect with them there. And iOS does that a little bit differently. They use a different file format, a different ID. Um, but the same text appears there. You'll see if you look closely that some bits of that text are a little bit different, right? So um, Android limits strings to ASCII text. So no proper Unicode characters are possible there uh, in this particular iteration. 
we need to use a straight quote and back, backslash escape that in order to get a proper typographic apostrophe. Uh, the placeholder here is the percent one dollar s, uh, whereas in iOS uh, we have uh, access to proper Unicode typography, so we can use the typographic apostrophe there. Um, this team uses different placeholders, um, so the same placeholder that appeared in, in Android is here uh, percent at sign. Um, and on the desktop platform we have yet another format, um, so proper, uh, proper Unicode there as well, slightly different uh, placeholder format. But I show you this not because everyone's keen on looking at code, but to illustrate why we can't just copy and paste across platforms. As writers, we're interested in reuse, and we know that copying and pasting things is not efficient. Um, but when the format requirements dictate that we cannot use the exact same piece of text everywhere, we need to be very cautious and cognizant of that. Um, so this presents some challenges that we need to solve. So we'll talk a little bit about how we did things there and how we do things now or how things were done later. When I arrived, a lot of this text in the user interfaces um, was hard-coded and mixed in with program source code. So each client was built by a separate team. Uh, there was an Android team that took care of those, uh, uh, that app and an iOS team that built the same piece of software for another platform uh, using a separate code base and the desktop team as well. Um, and so the interaction between those teams was limited with regard to code sharing and therefore there was sometimes some drift within the text. So what began perhaps as, as unified text would sometimes drift as one platform changed things without notifying or without sharing that change with the others. And so one of the first things that we did was, Chris, questions? Ah, we might need some power. There we go. Wonderful. Um, so we don't need to be able to read this spreadsheet that just serves as an illustration that this was sort of one of the initial steps was to do a bit of an inventory to see which text appears where, place them side by side, and use that as an opportunity to align those texts and decide where those texts have drifted, how would we like to align them, which of those variants would we prefer to use. But of course, this sort of thing gets quite tedious and involves a lot of manual work. So that was very clear that that would not be our method for very long. It was just an initial transition phase. And you might find yourself in this situation if you're tasked with uh, aligning user interface copy at your own company at some point. So that's why I mentioned it. At some point, we um, were able to convince the developers to extract all of the user-facing text from their source code into strings files, dedicated bits of text, fi text files that we could share and review with one another. Uh, this makes it easier to see all of the text that appears in an application at once, so you can actually read that file from start to finish and check for consistency errors and grammar errors and things like that. Much, much easier than flipping through thousands of files of source code to find a single sentence. So with that in place, we were able to take these um, strings files and place them all beside one another in a single repository. So we had one repository that contained all of the text for the Android application and all of the text for the iOS application and all of the text for the desktop application. And that allows us to search and replace uh, over all of the uh, platforms at, at once. But that was also a stopgap solution and a stepping stone along our way. We knew that we wouldn't do that for very long either. But developers initially were a bit reluctant to give us content people access to their source code. Because developers were afraid that content people wouldn't understand the difference between a straight quote and a Unicode quote a double quote and a single quote, 
an angle bracket, and a curly brace. And they were afraid that we would forget a semicolon somewhere and break everything. Right? So that's why we had our own copies of their strings files, made the changes there, and then asked the developers to go and pick up our modified versions of their string files and place them into their own repositories. And there's nothing that developers hate much more than going back and forth and copying files. So with this little um, strategy, we were able to convince them quite soon that, look, we're actually not breaking anything. When you copy the files from our repository and place them into yours, they still work. And they got so sick of copying things back and forth that they gave us the keys to the car. Which means we got access to each of the client repositories, the Android, the iOS, and the desktop repositories, and were able to then use the same process that the developers use to adjust their source code and to maintain it for the copy. So essentially, we would use those string files and edit them in place and then submit pull requests to the teams, to the developers, to say, we have modified the text. Now please review our changes and accept them into your code base. So that requires a certain level of technical ability on the part of the writing team. Um, some writers are a little bit afraid of Git, um, but we can take them by the hand and help them to understand how that works. And with a little bit of training, writers can learn that rather quickly. And developers are happier too, because their work, when we change copy, is much, much easier. All they have to do is look at the code, uh, look at the code review and the pull request and press a button to merge. So that makes things much, much easier. So the process that we arrived at after these stages that I described is one where product features will begin uh, with the product team, product owners, and um, um, design team will begin designing a feature. And early in this process, we try to nail down the basic terminology for a feature because the only thing that's harder than naming something is renaming it later. Internal jargon is very, very persistent. Once you start calling something something at the company, everyone will continue to call it that, even after you've realized that name is a bad idea. Code names stick with us forever. So we tried, as well as we could, to sort of eradicate code names by using the proper words from the start. Um, that doesn't always work, but it's a good thing to strive for. And from that initial uh, feature uh, draft, the design team would then begin to work more closely on a pro proper design specification uh, that would inform the development process. And the writers work closely with the design team to nail the copy uh, for the entire feature. So all of the checkboxes and settings, um, the takeover screens and buttons that would be associated with a new feature um, were part of the specification that the design team produced. And that specification then was handed over to the de development team. Uh, and of course, in, during the development process, the developers would take the, the, the text and the, the uh, initial design from the designers, implement that in code, and ref refine it as necessary. Because of course, sometimes when things were designed in the context of a design application or a prototyping tool, um, it wasn't entirely clear what the constraints would be with regard to space or something like that. So perhaps the initial copy maybe didn't fit in the, uh, in the, in the dialogues, and we might need have to go back and refine that. Or something about the way the feature was designed maybe wasn't implemented or possible to implement exactly like that. 
So there was a certain refinement process that happened there. And during this process, we would also involve the customer support team who would need to understand how the feature works um, so that when customers ask about it, they're able to answer those questions. So they were involved from the start also with um, copy um, so that they understood what the features would be called and could begin providing their support content even before the release went out. And then shortly before the release, um, once that copy was stable, and we all agreed between development design and um, support teams, um, we would refine that a little bit further and take a look at the localization. Um, and now this product um, was localized into several languages. German was one of them. And um, of course, Natasha was talking about text expansion earlier. Uh, and as, as she said, there are basically um, um, sort of average values for each language. Uh, where you can expect a certain level of text expansion, and the, that, that figure for German tends to be about 1.3. So German text tends to be about 30% longer than, German uh, than English text, and that's something we always need to take in, 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 into account. Um, so once the feature is released, it goes public. Users are aware of this now. Hopefully not too many copy changes are necessary after that, because it's very difficult for users to understand if we change the words for things after they start using them. But, of course, sometimes that's necessary. So there, even after the release happens, sometimes a bit of maintenance is necessary as we realize that users may have different terms for things than we initially thought. So what sort of guidelines do we use during this process? The idea here is not to reinvent the wheel, but to point to existing standards wherever possible. So with regard to grammar rules and things like that, we don't need to talk about those ourselves. We just say which ones do we adhere to. Uh, and these are, this is true for language things, but also for many things related to software and user interfaces. There's already standards for things like that. So what we needed to document was more our own choices, our own deltas. So in order to do that, we put together a little microsite uh, that we decided to integrate into our own brand site. Many companies have something like this where they publicly provide information on the proper use of their logo and that you shouldn't place a pizza icon over the logo and it needs a certain amount of breathing room and these are our colors and these are our fonts. And we began to think, why not have that same sort of information uh, for our copy guidelines? Because this copy, this text in the user interface, while we're creating it within the organization, there are people writing about our product who are not inside our organization. So we have external agencies writing uh, PR material, preparing articles, journalists writing about our products, uh, and so we would like them to use the same terminology and the same sort of tone of voice that we do. Um, so we provided this publicly and pointed people to this wherever possible. So this brand, um, this microsite, uh, contains some information relating to our copy. Um, we have tone of voice guidelines there, which are quite common for many organizations. Not always public, sometimes they're private, but in our case, we chose to share them. Um, we include some writing style issues there. Again, not particular things that could be found in any other style guide, but things that are particular to the way we use words. So things like, do we log in or do we sign in, right? Um, we, at some point, introduced a professional version of the product. Initially, it was a, it was a, a consumer version that was free, but then we in, in, in introduced a pro version, which required billing, right? We have monthly billing. People can pay by the year. What do you call it when people pay by the year? Is that annual or is it yearly? Things like this. Both proper words, which one do we use? Those are the kinds of things that we would document here. 
We provide some translation resources here as well um, so that people are aware of existing conventions uh, for translation. Uh, not necessarily the way we use things, but the way platforms use things. So for example, the English word save, um, what's the German for that? Yeah? Speichern, right? Two answers, which one's right? You're both right. She uses a Mac, that person uses Windows. Yeah? You can tell that based on the, you can tell that based on the answer, right? So, um, Windows localizations decided that, uh, that save was, uh, was Speichern, um, but uh, decades ago, Apple at some point decided to retain the connotation of safety with save, right? Your stuff is safe with me. Sichern, ganz sicher, yeah? Sichern unter, oh, no, speichern unter, sichern als, yeah? right? So proper words, but we need to know which ones to use. And we need to know that for our application because we need to understand the context, right? So as writers, we like to be consistent. And some of us would like to be consistent everywhere. But if we were to use the exact same words for our application, regardless of platform, we would create a new conflict. Because our app then would not use the same terminology as the platform on which it appears. And that would lead to a great deal of cognitive dissonance and confusion among users. So it's most important that we adhere to platform conventions and our own internal consistency is secondary in that regard. That was the approach that we took there, right? So we have some sample usage patterns here, you know, when to, when to use certain words. Uh, and user interface references, references in this sense, um, references to works of reference that the platform uh, owners have put out. So Apple, of course, has very extensive guidelines. They've had them for decades, a document called the Human Interface Guidelines. Um, and they have these for macOS, they have them for iOS. And these are, you know, three, 400 page long documents that uh, go into great detail uh, about how elements of the user interface are to be referred, um, even, you know, down to if you have a, a, a series of shortcuts of keyboard combination, which symbol appears in which order. Does it, is it shift option command? Is it option command shift? These things have all been decided. We don't need to figure that out. We just need to use the conventions that already exist. And um, we also put up a glossary here. I'll talk about the glossary more in a moment um, so that people understand why we use certain words and when we use words a certain way, what we mean. Um, so we put this up in public. Uh, and we also chose to open source this. So for anyone who's interested in putting together something like this for your own uh, use, if you like and find any of our stuff helpful, um, you're welcome to, to fork this repository and use it. Now, of course, you wouldn't want to start, talk, start talking about your product like we talk about ours, um, but you might find it useful as a starting place. So let's look a little bit at um, terminology. Where does terminology come from? What terms? have special meaning? What do users find confusing? What sort of internal jargon do employees use when they talk about the product? What else should a glossary contain? Should we keep references to outdated terms or should a glossary only contain our official words, the ones that we really use? We decided to add the deprecated terms as well to specifically say, don't use this word, use this other one instead. Um, and then there are questions about, should we be publishing something like this in public? Is this somehow showing our underwear, or is it setting a good example, right? So these are the kinds of things you need to think about when, when collecting terminology. Um, you can start simple. 
Um, even if you're not entirely sure how to present this, even if you're not sure if it's going to be public yet, um, you can just start drafting a basic spreadsheet. And you can do this in Excel or something. We chose to uh, use a comma-separated values file um, and version that in GitHub. GitHub displays things like this quite nicely. Um, so this was our very first round of uh, iteration for the glossary. It was just a three-column, four-column um, spreadsheet that has a term, a preferred term, some usage notes, and perhaps some sample copy around how that might be used. And then after iterating on that for a while, where, to a point where it stabilized, and once we had internal sign-off on the idea of publishing it in public, um, someone would like to get in the back door, perhaps. Um, we then added that to our public site. Um, so um, that makes things much easier for people who write about our product from the outside world uh, to reference our terminology there and to understand things like, we don't answer calls, we accept them. Stuff like that. Um, what I find quite helpful about something like this is if you have rules like this, terms within your glossary or other usage guidelines, if you give each of them a URL, you can actually point people to these explanations. So if a journalist is writing about your product and not quite using the terminology that you'd like them to, you can send them a link and say, here, this is why we prefer to use this word over this word. Or your colleague who keeps using that old code name send them a link um, and they will be educated. So that's, that's quite helpful, like in the way that on GitHub or something, um, you know, every conversation has a URL in the form of a, of, a, of a pull request or an issue or something like that, or even a comment in an individual uh, issue thread. Having each of these things um, directly addressable with the URL makes it much more easy to point people to them. So localization is always an issue when it comes to copy and strings in user interfaces. Um, and there are platforms that can help to make this a little bit easier. Um, things like Crowdin or Phrase, used to be called Phrase App, um, will allow writers and translators to review and update the copy without having to do any coding or understand source code. They can integrate changes quite easily. The developers can integrate changes quite easily via pull requests or some other automated process. The screenshot here is an example from Crowdin, which was a localization app, uh, a platform that we used at Wire. And as the name suggests, Crowdin is designed actually for crowdsourcing translations. So you can actually publish in public your application's code or uh, copy and allow people in the community to propose translations for that. Now, that doesn't preclude you from reviewing them officially internally and having your own people check to make sure things are okay. But this also allows you, if you like, to have additional numbers of uh, localizations for which perhaps no one at your company even speaks the language. Now, that may, of course, present some issues of its own. If there's no one at your company that can vet the Estonian, Estonian translation of your product, does that worry you? We thought about it for a bit and came to the conclusion that the likelihood of someone spending 400 hours to do a complete Hungarian translation of our product that is malicious is very unlikely um, because it's a lot of work. Um, so we chose to accept that and we basically chose to say we have several and these are the official translations of our product. There are community translations available. We're not entirely sure that they're great, but maybe they will help you to use our product. Right? So some of the challenges and issues that we faced. First of all, when you're trying to do this sort of work, 
start with a content inventory. This is not particular to UX writing. This is, of course, similar for uh, you know, any sort of web-based work or any, uh, you know, any kind of writing task where you have a body of content that you need to align. You need to understand what copy and what content exists in order to align it. But copy is everywhere, right? When we talk about UX writing, we're talking about usually microcopy that appears in the user interface, but there's also the website, the blog, some sales and marketing content, Perhaps your company sends out client emails that when something happens in the app, an email is generated to say, here, click this link to reset your password. It's not strictly copy that appears within the app, but it's integral to the user's interaction process with your product. And so the copy there, of course, should agree with what you use in the app. Um, you may have document templates and other sort of corporate identity documents. Um, that would probably also benefit from being consistent with your product itself. Uh, and then there may be things like documentation, um, uh, API documentation, maybe even a developer portal. Um, ideally, all of this content should be aligned with what appears in the user interface. So how do we ensure that these things stay in sync? First of all, as I said at the start, one of the main prerequisites for this is to ensure that all of the user-facing text in your app is stored in strings files and not hard-coded within the source code of your product. Um, this will allow you to compare and review that text all at once. A writer can read all of the words that appear in the product at once. And you can use internationalization then to verify your design. So if you have a strings file that has all of your copy, you can do a pseudo-translation of that and translate it into gibberish, right? Klingon or something. And produce a Klingon version of your app just to find out which parts of the dialogues will cut off text that is longer than you expected, right? You can validate whether your dev developers have coded the application in a way to support um, high byte languages. So does, does your application source code even support uh, Chinese, Japanese, Korean text? Maybe they didn't code it in a way to support that. Doing a sort of pseudo-translation is a way to find that out. So you can even translate into you know, fake Chinese um, just to see whether things work. Um, so that's, a, that's an, an advantage of uh, storing text separately, is you can ma manipulate that text outside, put it back into the product, and make sure nothing breaks. Include writers early in the process. Uh, as I said during the, the, the overview of the process that we use there, the sooner writers are involved, the sooner we can ensure everyone is on the same page and using the same words for things. And like any other sort of content, one part of the work is creating it, but perhaps the far greater task is maintaining this content over time. So like for any other kind of content, you'll need to define some sort of governance, governance process for your UI copy. Who owns it? Who maintains it? How will it be changed? How will we know when it needs to be changed? And one way to ensure that that process stays in sync with development is to align your collaboration flows with the collaboration processes that the developers use. So typically, this is some sort of version control. This is some sort of pull request-based workflow where as the developers change their source code, there is some trigger in the system that says, hey, writers, we've changed this bit we need you to look at it again, right? So that that has an automated part of the process there so that when something on one end changes, the other stakeholders are aware that they need to change their bit too. If the developer decides to reduce the size of a field 
in the user interface, writers need to know that because they may need to change the copy to fit within the new constraints. So there needs to be some kind of a flag there that goes up, right? And when it comes to processes, it's important to design your processes for reuse and automation as much as you can. Because the last thing you want to be doing is copying and pasting things back and forth because that's a recipe for disaster to ensure that things drift over time. So the more automation you have, um, the more you can make yourselves aware of the things that need, should, need to change and allow people to focus on the things that they need um, to do manually uh, and let the computers do everything else. So the resources thing I can kind of skip because uh, Natasha already listed both of these books, which is great. She also, she also took the time to actually put screenshots of them in there, good. I have a physical copy of one of these books, so if you'd like to look at the physical copy of this book, you're welcome to do so. Um, I didn't think to bring um, my copy of, um, of Conversational Design by Erica Hall. I should have done that. I don't have a physical copy of Tori's book, um, but you're happy to peruse that at some point. Um, so yeah, there's, uh, there's more information about this. Um, a lot of people have written um, a good bit of work on this. It's an emerging discipline, so there aren't that many books yet. Um, but the microcopy book here um, is quite helpful if you're looking for some very specific examples of like, how do I write copy for empty states? Or how do I write error messages or something like that? That's the sort of thing you'll find here. If that's the sort of thing you were hoping to find in my talk, I'm sorry. <laughs> but is there anything else you'd like to know? I also have a copy of Eric's book. Good for you. It doesn't have a copy of Yes and no. So to repeat the question just for the benefit of the streaming audience, the question was, um, um, does the user of, an, of this application who uses the, the, the product on multiple platforms, if we defer to the platform conventions for text, have to contend with different phrasing in each version? Yes and no. So we try to be as consistent as we can across the platforms wherever possible, but where there is a platform convention, we stick to that platform convention. So for example, when it comes to, let's say, capitalization of buttons, right? There's a button that says okay, button that says cancel, button that says yes, I really want to do this, whatever. On Android, that button would use all caps because the Android style guide says all caps for buttons. On iOS, that same button would share the same words, but those words would be in title case because buttons on iOS use title case. So it's not always about using different words for things, it's just about deferring to the platform conventions wherever possible. So something like, uh, you know, uh, like a save command, as we said, that's something that kind of comes from the operating system anyway, so that's usually not the kind of copy that we have to write. Um, so wherever possible, they're seeing the same thing, but as, as a, a, a user that might have the desktop version and an Android version, they want to see the app in both of those contexts in a way that is not going to disturb them or, or find, uh, that, that they would not find uh, surprising, let's say. Um, it's perhaps less important 
that connection between iOS and Android because not everyone uses both. But there are, and we should be aware of that, Android users that may have an iPad or something like that. So it's entirely possible, right? But Android is single space, iOS is type-based. So your app? Excuse me? Android uses single space. Right. Thing, right. iOS uses type-based. So your app for the platform also mirrors that? We mirror that, right. So if, if, if you were to look at the settings dialog uh, uh, for this application, uh, on Android you would find the capitalization of each of the options in the settings dialog um, will adhere to Android's convention for those. And on the iOS, the wording would be the same, but the capitalization would differ because iOS conventions for things like this differ. Yeah? The settings are kind of special. It's not the core of what your app does. What about your app itself, what it does, the features the, of your app, how do you Those things then, of course, that are not operating specific, system specific, we can do however we want. Right? So in that sense, it is consistent across the platforms. It's just the certain things that are platform specific, we make sure to adhere to that. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, so you spoke about differentiating between official and community translations. Yes. For your official translations, do you also maintain a glossary for, where translators can say, okay, do I use Zikirin or Speichern? Yes. Yeah, so um, the, the, the question was, is there a glossary that uh, is available to translators um, uh, who, who translate our, our stuff? And the, the answer is yes and no, in the sense that yes, there should be. And yes, we began one. Um, it was never completely finished, and it's certainly not as complete as the other ones. We don't, have, we, don't, we, don't, we don't have a translated version of the entire glossary for everything, and the glossary itself is actually quite meager. It's, 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 just, a, it's, it's just a start, basically. Um, but the, um, the, plat the, the, the platform that we use to, um, to, as an interface to the, to the uh, localization process allows us to augment um, uh, the strings with a glossary, so that where a word appears in a text, and if there is a glossary entry for that word, it will be auto-suggested, and it may be underlined or highlighted in a way with a tooltip where the translator can then mouse over that and see what is meant by that. We can provide screenshots to, to give context for the translators. Um, so, um, yeah, we, we try to do that. Um, I should probably be fair and say that I've been speaking in present tense. Um, I no longer work for this company at the moment, so I've been talking about something that was a project for a very long time in, 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 in my career. I've since moved on, but I still thought it would be interesting to share this. I don't know exactly whether they still do things exactly this way or whether they too have moved on. Um, I just find it, it's, it's, it was a part of me for so long that I still kind of use the present tense, so. <laughs> I, have, I have one question which is exactly the same as your question. Uh -huh. so yeah. One other question, how does your content inventory look? Could you explain in detail? Probably not in detail. <laughs> Maybe just sure. a summary of how. Okay, so what I meant um, by content inventory in that, uh, in, as, when, I, when I used that word, was a rather limited sense of the term. Um, content inventory is a very, uh, I'd say, almost loaded term, right? There's, there's, there's the notion of a content audit, which is typically the process. The content inventory is typically the byproduct of the audit process. So it's a, an inventory is the deliverable, the audit is the process. Um, when I used that term, what I meant was the process that we went about to figure out which bits of text each platform uses and list them all side by side. 
So that was what I meant by inventory. What is all the text that the iOS app uses? What is all the text that the Android app uses? What is all the text that appears in the desktop application? Place them side by side and look at where they differ and decide, do they differ for a reason, because platform conventions, or do they differ although they should be the same? So that's what I meant by inventory in this particular case, is get it side by side somehow so that you can compare it and make choices about whether it's aligned as well as it should be, or whether there are differences that are justified. Yeah? Anyone else in the room? Okay. I have another one. You mentioned, you mentioned journalists as one of the target groups of your glossary. Yes. Uh, does that ever work? Because my experience is journalists don't care, and if they care, they will use their internal style guide for their publication. Right. That depends entirely on your relationship to journalists, right? If you have a sort of hostile <laughs> relationship with journalists and very critical journalists are writing about your product, of course, you're not going to be able to influence them at all. Um, if you work with PR agencies who solicit uh, contributions uh, to major magazines or major publications about your product, to the degree that you have a good relationship with your agency, you may be able to influence that process and your agency may be able to then seed journalists with some information that they may be able to integrate into their review. And this isn't about telling them what to write, but journalists generally are quite um, thankful for input, right? They'll do the work of writing, but if they know more about your product because you give them good information up front, then that increases your chances of them writing about it in the way that you would like them to. They, they, know, they may still have an opinion that you don't like, but they'll use the right words in their nasty opinion. <laughs> I have another one in the, in the chat room, but is anyone else in the room? Okay, actually this might be a question that Natasha would like to answer as well. Um, Shall we share the mic? <laughs> because uh, both companies are startups of varying degrees. Mm -hmm. uh, so you both provide very good resources, the repositories, the templates, the workshops. But how do you hook in the decision makers that it's a good idea to do it in the first place? <laughs> I've been talking for a long time. Maybe you take that answer first and I'll, I'll offer my... I'll offer my... Um, I think for us, uh, we do, of course, a lot of alignment workshops, and we just annoy people. <coughs> we just go and say that you need to have this workshop, please. Uh, this is how UX research started, but our firm as well, we start up a company here. Uh, we were just annoying people, and now I'm annoying them as well. I think this, there is, there is no other, like, when you start, there is only a way of Starting in a very cool user-centric company that tells you we have a workshop, let's do this, or you annoy people. And it's your I, I, I feel like it's part of my job to annoy people. <laughs> <laughs> I can agree with that. I think I, I, I think um I think actually many of the people at Wire 